Good morning. I'm Brad Hull. I'm an attorney with Hickey and Hull Law Partners. This is Coffee with Counsel. This morning's episode is going to be a little different format than normal. Usually Kevin Hickey will be here with me, but he's out traveling the country this week, visiting Montana and Yellowstone, having a good old time and probably pretending to be a cowboy or something. But I wasn't really planning to do an episode on my own, and then the Supreme Court issued this decision that I thought was pretty interesting and might make a good podcast. We like to cross our legal talk up with sports, and this decision that came out regarding NCAA did just that. So it made a lot of news, but if you didn't see it, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in the case NCAA versus Alston. It was a case brought by current and former student athletes challenging the NCAA's restrictions on compensation for players, and they challenged it as violations of the Sherman Act. The Sherman Act is an antitrust act that generally prohibits contracts or conspiracies in restraint of trade or commerce. And so this generally means it prohibits price fixing schemes. And the argument in this case was that the NCAA's restrictions were in essence in essence, an illegal price fixing of the labor costs for student athletes. And I want to talk a little bit about the decision. And then at the end, I'll talk a little bit about how it relates to college athletics and, of course, our um, beloved Razorbacks. Let me first say that this is a more interesting opinion than most Supreme Court decisions. At least in my opinion, that's, that's the case, especially if you're a sports fan first few pages of it go into the history of the NCAA's formation and the issues that came in early with compensating athletes. The court discusses how the NCAA arose from safety concerns that were developing because in the early 1900s when football was becoming popular, it was violent in nature and because of that violence and lack of safety procedures and equipment and rules, There were numerous fatalities each year. Uh, The court notes that in 1905, there were 18 deaths of players. So this led to the creation of the NCAA and with that, restrictions on compensating players came into place as well. But the court discusses how there were money complications that really existed from the beginning, even before the NCAA with these college athletics. I view that as a early pushback in this opinion from the court on the idea that there was some sort of pure amateurism at any time in college athletics. And the court included a great quote from a 1940s running back who said he got the big bucks under his pillow when he scored touchdowns and he couldn't afford to graduate. Of course, most of the opinion is devoted to the legal issues in this case. The case started as a broad challenge to the NCAA's restrictions on athlete compensation. Uh, The district court had a 10-day trial and issued a 50-page decision. The decision split the baby somewhat. It upheld much of what the NCAA was doing, but it did find that certain restrictions were illegal. Both sides appealed that decision to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit upheld it. Importantly here, only the NCAA appealed the Ninth Circuit's decision. So that means that the only issue in front of the Supreme Court was whether the district court's ruling on the illegality of those specific restrictions was correct. So it wasn't considering the broader scheme of limiting the ability of college players to earn money and salaries, endorsements, etc. 
So what were those specific restrictions at issue that the court found unlawful? Well, they were certain NCAA rules that were limiting the education-related benefits that schools could make available to student-athletes. The court found unlawful the rules that limited scholarships for graduate and vocational schools, uh, payments for academic tutoring, and payments for post-eligibility internships. The court also found that the NCAA could limit cash awards for academic achievements for student-athletes, but only so long as those limits were no lower than the cash awards that they allowed for athletic achievements. And that's currently at $5,980 per year. It's very important that we understand that the Supreme Court's ruling was very specific to these education-related funds that were provided by the schools and conferences. The court said that the NCAA really had three main objections on these issues, and in talking about it, the court also made clear how narrow the actual decision was. First, the NCAA was arguing that the paid post-eligibility internships would circumvent limitations on payments to players because boosters could just promise paid internships down the road at a company and pay extravagant salaries. And the court said, no, this is not what we're dealing with here. The decision wasn't that broad. The decision was limited to internships that were funded by the schools and the conferences, not boosters. NCAA also argued that limits on awards for schools uh, for academic or graduation achievements at a rate no lower than the limit on athletic awards would lead to de facto salaries for players because the school could pay thousands of dollars to players for minimal academic achievements like a passing GPA. And again, the court said this is not the correct reading of the decision because the NCAA can still cap the amount of compensation. It just has to be tied to the athletic awards caps which the NCAA was already saying and clearly believed was not the same as a professional salary. Then the last of the three objections was the um, NCAA's position that allowing the schools to provide in-kind benefits for computers and provide tutoring and, and things of that nature geared towards the graduate and vocational schools could lead to exploitation, noting, arguing that you had luxury cars that could be provided for athletes to get to class and other unnecessary or inordinately value items being provided. And the court again said that this was not a correct reading because NCAA still had leeway to specify and define educational related items in this context and and specifically was saying that, you know, the NCAA could enforce a quote, no Lamborghini rule. In the course of addressing those objections and shooting them down, the court also pretty much defined what this ruling was was really about. Of course, it also had to address the legal basis for upholding the district court's decision, and that leads to the question of why did the court find these restrictions to be unlawful? Again, this case was brought under the Sherman Act, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on, on Sherman Act case law, but... Broadly speaking, this this Sherman Act starts from a position that a competitive market is a better market. And generally speaking, the intent of the Sherman Act is to protect a competitive market. So this law is 
a law against unreasonable anti-competitive restraints on commerce. This case is somewhat unique in that the NCAA did not provide, as the court described it, meaningful dispute of the fact that the restrictions they imposed on compensation for that athletes had an anti-competitive effect on the market. The crux of this case came to whether the NCAA had produced a pro-competition rationale that could not reasonably be achieved through less anti-competitive means. And the Supreme Court pretty strongly agreed with the district court's decision that the NCAA could not meet that burden. At least from the court's interpretation, the NCAA really hung its hat on an amateurism argument. Essentially, it took the position that college athletics is its product, and the demand for this product is tied to its amateur nature, and that blurring the lines between college and professional sports would impair the demand for the product, which would have a negative effect on competition. Less demand would be less competition. The district court found that less restrictions on these particular education-related benefits would not blur the line between college and professional sports, and therefore the restrictions were unreasonable and unlawful. Basically, you know, providing paid internships, providing scholarships, providing awards for academic achievement, the district court was saying that these are not the types of compensation that would be confused in any way with professional salaries. The Supreme Court upheld that decision. Uh, The Supreme Court did not, though, make any determination as to whether the NCAA's rationale on this amateurism argument was sufficient to withstand further scrutiny of its other compensation restraints. Again, those were not the issue in this opinion. But Justice Kavanaugh did write a scathing concurrence that did address that topic. This concurrence was not the majority courts of the court's opinion, and so it's not law. It's what we'd call dicta, but it sheds a lot of light on what we might expect to see in the future. NCAA basically wanted immunity from the Sherman Act, and that was denied. And Kavanaugh points out that if we are applying the Sherman Act to the NCAA, then there are some serious issues about the manner in which it fixes the price of its labor. He noted that there is a clear level of circularity in the NCAA's position that colleges should be able to decline to pay student-athletes because the defining feature of college sports is the declining to pay student athletes he had some comparisons to other in- industries to show what he was talking about he talked about law firms and hospitals and so with hospitals he was saying that you can't agree to cap nurses incomes because you want to create a purer form of helping the sick that would be unlawful and he ends his con- concurrence with a pretty strong statement He says that nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under any ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. 
the NCAA is not above the law. So what do we take away from Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence and the majority opinion? What is, that, what is this going to mean for the NCAA? Well, it's not entirely clear. The NCAA doesn't seem to be reacting as if they've lost everything for sure. But one thing I think that is prevalent in the concurrence and, and to a lesser degree in the majority opinion is that the court is encouraging the other branches and other ent- entities to try to address this problem. They're acknowledging that there's a lot of complexities and it's going to be a difficult decision, but they make it clear that they have to apply the law as written. And so to me, this is um, this means that change or, changes are coming and it should be a warning shot for the NCAA that either they're going to need to get Congress to make a change to the law in their favor or they need to start making changes to the way they are operating because it does not look like the courts are going to continue to uphold the status quo. Now, it may take years for a change to take effect, but I think the writing is on the wall from these opinions that the status quo is going to have to be changed. Now, Arkansas has already made some moves anticipating these changes with the laws on players being able to use their name, image, and likeness. I think this is really important for us to get ahead of the ball on and i'm glad to see that we're doing it i follow arkansas sports on social media and it is clear that a lot of their marketing is geared towards this and i don't know if the changes are going to be specifically name image likeness or something different but changes are coming and getting ahead of it is going to be very important and for what it's worth i'm optimistic that Uh, These opportunities are going to be a positive for schools like Arkansas, where we have extremely passionate fan bases, but also less competition in the market from rival schools. Uh, I lived in Atlanta for several years, and, and I got to experience life outside of Arkansas. And when I came back, I truly appreciated how how unique it is or or at least rare that you have a state school dominate the entire state the way that Arkansas does. And of course, so I'm, I'm pretty much always overly optimistic when it comes to my teams, but we will see. I think changes are coming. I think this opinion is the start of, of compensation really starting to look very different for student athletes in the coming years. And I'm glad to see that Arkansas is in front of it and hopefully going to be able to benefit from that.